We're going to resume our study of the book of Proverbs and continue this thematic approach. And we have covered a lot of ground already looking at many different topics from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs can be summarized by one word. It's the word wisdom. And what does wisdom mean? And we can paraphrase the word wisdom or or find a synonym for the word wisdom in the word skill. Wisdom is skill. In particular, wisdom is, is the skill of living successfully in the eyes of God in a treacherous world. The book of Proverbs gives us practical wisdom. It instructs us in the skill of living successfully, not as determined by this world, but living successfully in the eyes of God, our creator and redeemer. And it gives us this skill because of the fact that we live in a treacherous world. We do not live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a world that is impacted by sin and the curse. And so skillful living in this world is impossible apart from divine assistance, divine enablement, and divine revelation. And that's what the book of Proverbs gives us. It gives us divine revelation to know how to live successfully in God's eyes in this treacherous world. Now, one of the most challenging problems that we deal with in living successfully is dealing with our own flesh. In dealing with the foolishness that still is intertwined in our habits, in our practices, that go back to our life before redemption. We have been saved by God. We have come to know the fear of God. And, and now our path is towards that celestial city. It's toward the future with him in paradise But the path along that way is treacherous, and we still are battling the remnants of our past life, the remnants of the flesh. And one of the great battles we face, one of the most challenging aspects of our flesh has to do with anger. The book of Proverbs recognizes this and devotes a good number of its teachings to this topic of anger. Now, before we look at that, just consider this. Just even on a physical level, anger is deadly. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for your heart. I was looking at some statistics on this and came across some medical findings that state this, that in the two hours after an angry outburst, the chances of you having a heart attack double. So if you have an angry outburst tonight when you get home, hopefully, especially after tonight, that won't be the case. But if you have an angry outburst, the chances of you having a heart attack double in in the two hours after that angry outburst. And people who live a life of, of constant anger and resentment have twice the risk of heart disease. Anger is also dangerous for your brain. In the three hours after an angry outburst, the chances of a stroke increase threefold. Makes sense. 
I think all of us can say we've had angry outbursts and we know what it does to the body. Increases your chances of a stroke in that period after the angry outburst by three times. Anger in a physical way has been proven to weaken one's immune system. Those who are given to anger are known to have weaker immune systems. It also increases respiratory problems. I don't know know exactly why that is, but those who are angry people have problems with their lungs. And it's commonly known that anger dramatically shortens one's lifespan. We were not created to be angry people. Our bodies cannot handle the toll. And of course, that is the result of our own depravity, and it's the result of the depravity of others that is also exposed to us. But of course, the bigger danger isn't, the big danger isn't our physical health. You could say this, the bigger danger is the impact that our anger has on relationships. And even more so, the biggest danger is the spiritual toll that anger has on our lives. I was looking at some other statistics on our spiritual lives. I was looking at some other statistics and the, 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 common, uh, the common finding was that in the, the, the years leading up to 2020 and the pandemic, statisticians were already saying that the American culture, which is the most affluent culture in the world, was becoming increasingly angry. Now that was before March of 2020. I think all of us would acknowledge and agree that since March of 2020, the levels of anger in this culture have increased dramatically. We live in a very angry society and it's getting worse. And some of you are teachers or substitute teachers. You work with little children in the schools. I was talking with one substitute teacher recently who was teaching a group of second graders and was telling me about the state of those second graders and saying those second graders cause even mature adults to fear. They are so angry. And that generation will soon have driver's licenses and access to all kinds of weapons and whatnot all. It's a dangerous time to live. Anger is everywhere. Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, I'm going to refer to this book often. I'd highly recommend it. Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones. He says this, Anger is a universal problem, prevalent in every culture, experienced in every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric Sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. Now, how do we define anger? We need to start there because it has been defined in all kinds of ways, and especially when you go into the secular realm, they have all kinds of definitions for anger. We need to come up with a definition that is true, and I want to give you this definition that Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, gives, which I think is one of the best that you'll find. It's very Condensed, concise, and helpful. He says this, 
in defining anger. Anger is, quote, our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil, end quote. Let me say that again. It's important to catch this. Anger is, quote, our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil, end quote. That is what anger is. It's quite different than how psychologists will define it. It's quite different how it's portrayed in movies and in cartoons and so on. Anger is not just an emotion. Anger is much more than that. In fact, when we look at this definition, we can pull out five characteristics that I think are helpful for us to survey before we get into Proverbs teaching on anger. Let me give you these five components of anger as we pull that definition apart. Robert Jones does this in his book, and I want to summarize these. First of all, the first component of anger is this. It is an active response. It is an active response. Anger is not a product of your genetic makeup. It is not a subconscious or passive personality trait. We've got to deal with that first. A lot of men just think that anger is just a feeling or it's just how I was raised or it's just my DNA. It's just my conditioning. I don't have any say in it. It's just who I am. And that is one of the lies that needs to be destroyed first. By believing that lie, you justify anger left and right. And it's wrong. We must recognize anger is an active response. You don't have an anger problem. You do anger. Anger is something we do, not something we have. You have to take responsibility, and it begins there. Secondly, not only is it an active response, it is a whole-personed response. Anger is not merely a feeling. Again, some people just treat it as an emotion. It's not just an emotion. Certainly, emotions are part of it. But as the definition went, it is a whole-personed response. And so, therefore, it is a matter of the mind. It is a matter of the will. It is a matter of the emotions. It's a matter of the beliefs and the motives. Every part of you, what makes you who you are, your mind, your will, your affections, your desires, your intents, all of that is wrapped up into your response of anger. It's all part of it. Anger isn't just part of your being when you get angry. It is drawing upon everything that makes you a person. It's drawing upon your thoughts, your intentions, your will. All of that is involved. Number three, anger is a a response evoked by an internal cause. An internal cause. Now, when many people think of anger, they'll blame it on something else. They'll blame it on the dog that they tripped over, that piece of Lego that was just, you know, placed there in the carpet, and they didn't see it when they stepped on it. They'll blame anger on those external causes, a careless driver on the freeway, a cold meal, 
the tardiness of a co-worker, an insensitive spouse. All these things are called the causes of anger, but that is not true. Those things are just secondary causes. It is important with anger to recognize the ultimate cause, and the ultimate cause lies within the angry person himself. The cause is his desire. The cause is his expectation. The root of anger, as Jones says, lies in unsatisfied ruling I want sees. It lies in unmet demands and fallen heart idols. Cravings cause conflicts, he says. We need to recognize that. The next time you get angry, it's not because of the person on the freeway, your coworker, or your spouse, or your child, or the piece of Lego. The next time you get angry, you need to recognize it started because of something in you. A craving. Number four, anger is a response to a perceived evil. Anger identifies a person, act, or thing as a moral evil. That's what's involved in anger. It is, it is something that involves the conscience, where we, where we recognize something, whether true or false, we recognize it as a moral evil. And so anger manifests what a person truly believes about what is right and wrong in this universe. Anger truly reveals a person's moral code. The state of their conscience. That's what anger does. It brings that inward moral standard into visibility. Anger is exercised, whether that's internally or externally, when a person assumes the role of judge. Every time you get angry, you are, you are assuming the role of a judge. And then number five, anger is a negative moral judgment. You assume the role of a judge, you take the judge's seat, and then you render the verdict. Anger does not stop with merely identifying a person, act, or thing as a moral evil. It always involves pronouncing condemnation on that perceived evil. It also insists that some form of consequence is necessary, and this consequence can be Expressed subtly, can be expressed through things like a cold shoulder, can be expressed through the silent treatment, it can be expressed through the dwelling upon negative thoughts, kind of like the voodoo doll, you just in your mind you're putting in the pins left and right into that picture of that person. This expression of condemnation, this This taking out of consequences can be inflicted subtly or openly. It can be inflicted through profanity. It can be inflicted through very critical words. It can be inflicted even through physical violence. That is what the person believes is the necessary consequence that must be rendered in light of the judgment. Now you might ask, well, what about righteous anger? God is a God of anger. We know that. So where is righteous anger in all of this? And certainly, God is a God of anger. And anger isn't in itself inherently evil. And we have to make that clear right at the beginning. And I'll touch on it a little bit later. 
God is a God of anger. And the book of Proverbs even recognizes this. For example, in Proverbs 11 verse 23, we read this. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked, and what the wicked can expect in, this, in the end of this life, is wrath. Is wrath. Now, the implication there is that the wicked in this, in this life can only expect God's wrath. He is a God of wrath. And it's only right that the wicked will one day receive that. It's just. Proverbs 24 verse 18 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him, away from that oppressor. The Lord will turn his anger away. So we do read that God is a God of anger. Take the words of Nahum, one of the most stark statements in all of Scripture. Nahum 1 verse 2 A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. God is a God of wrath. Because there is evil in this world, there must be anger. Because there is evil in this world, God must express wrath. And that is what we call righteous wrath. And we who seek to imitate and to reflect the glory of God will increasingly reflect God's moral perfections. And so, as we'll see in a a bit here, there will be times when we will have righteous anger. Not all anger is sinful. There is a place for righteous anger. Let me tell you this, men. Way too many men justify their anger by falsely calling it righteous anger. Many do this. Many don't even understand what righteous anger is, and they just seek some kind of platform, justification, covering that they can continue on in their pattern of sin. You see, most of the Bible's teaching on anger, when it deals with humanity, most of the Bible's teaching on anger is negative. Most of it. You look through the scriptures, see how often the Bible talks about human anger in positive terms. It is exceedingly rare. Instead, when the Bible deals with human anger, it deals with one of man's most fundamental sins. James sums it up well in James chapter 1 verse 20. When he writes this, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So, since Proverbs is about skill and living, what does Proverbs have to teach us about anger and uprooting anger, a right attitude towards anger, and so on and so forth? I want to give you five summary principles from the book of Proverbs as it relates to anger. And the first one is this. Anger is the distinguishing mark of a fool. Anger is the distinguishing mark of the fool. Anger is the fool's calling card. Proverbs makes this abundantly clear. Many Proverbs on this topic. And in particular, the book of Proverbs points to these elements as it describes anger in relation to the fool. 
Anger is the distinguishing mark of the fool because of the fool's quickness to express anger. Because of the fool's abandonment of reason and constraint in the midst of his anger. And in light of the fact that the fool who has his temper tantrums has has no perception even of how foolish he looks in public. And you look around and when you see a grown man having a temper tantrum, when you see young men having temper tantrums, it is, it is ridiculous. It's foolish. But if you would ask that man at that time, he would have absolutely no thought that what he was doing looked foolish. He would believe himself to be fully justified and vindicated. And Proverbs points to that and says, anger is the distinguishing mark of the fool because the fool is given to these things. Notice this, Proverbs twelve sixteen: A fool's anger is known at once. But a prudent man conceals dishonor. A fool's anger is known at once. Here's the impulsive nature of sinful anger. It's known at once. Now, not in everybody. It's not seeking here to speak without exception. There are those who simmer. Those who practice that passive aggression. But in general, you'll see the fool display his anger immediately through this, through this uh, instant reaction, this outburst of anger. Proverbs 19 verse 3, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. Notice that the fool is the one whose heart rages against divine providence. His heart rages against the Lord. Think of it. This is what we are when we stub our toe and get angry. Our hearts rage against the Lord. We rage against the Lord because he put that doorpost there. And we're angry. It shouldn't be there. Well, who put it there? God did. And the fool rages. Or he rages when he goes out to his car and sees a flat tire. He rages against the providence of God. He is a fool. Proverbs 29 verse 11. A fool always loses his temper but a wise man holds, his back, holds it back. Here again, you see the impulsive nature of a fool with respect to his temper. And notice, he loses it. And again, over and over, we see in Proverbs that the fool is defined as the one who has no control. He gives himself over to the lack of control. He lets it all show. He does not care. There is no restraint. He loses his temper. J. Adams, in a commentary that he's written on Proverbs for counselors, writes this about the proverb in 12 verse 16, which said that a fool's anger is known at once. He said this, the stupid fool gets irritated easily and lets everyone know. A prudent man, on the other hand, does not consider every insult a challenge he must take up. Rather, he simply considers the source, prays for the person leveling the insult, and refuses to become upset over it. Many counselees could profit from learning and regularly applying the verse 12 verse 16 to their situations. Restraint of inappropriate emotion is something that many psychiatrists think is unhealthy. They advocate ventilation. God teaches otherwise. 
And that's something that we do here in the world today, right? If you've got anger, you've got to express it. And certainly, there are many health implications to keeping it internal. But rather than mortifying the anger, the psychologist says you've got to find the, the venue to vent. So find the punching bag and vent. And as Adam says, that is not biblical advice. Biblical advice says find the root and kill it. Proverbs 25, verse 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. So if you're a man who's given to anger, if you're a man who expresses these outbursts of anger, lose control, say things that you not say in this context here tonight, notice that you're like a city, you have no wall. You have no control over your spirit, and the book of Proverbs calls you a fool. Take that to heart, men. The Bible calls you a fool. Let me put it in the words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Number two, anger is devastating to relationships. The book of Proverbs recognizes this. Anger is devastating to relationships. Some of the most vivid consequences of anger are strife and relational destruction. Even think back to the very opening chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. And notice how the blood of Abel gives testimony to the relational destruction brought about by anger, in that case, the anger of Cain. As Longman, Tremper Longman states it very simply, quote, anger destroys familial and community relationships, end quote. Anger destroys community and family relationships. That's what anger does, and that's why the book of Proverbs is so clear in its denunciation of anger. And what's important to note here is this. Indeed, fools will be publicly angry and they will pour their wrath upon complete strangers. Just go to the Costco parking lot on a Saturday morning and you're going to see it. Right? Fools will pour it out on complete strangers, but but note this. Most often those who are closest to him will be the victims. Proverbs 15, verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Anger results in relational destruction. But the slow to anger calms a dispute. Proverbs 16, verse 28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Some of you might be saying, well, I've got, that's my life verse. But let me say, your wife probably has that memorized on the back of her eyelids and just changing the words around there a little bit. Anger destroys 
marriages. In fact, let me say this, that when we talk about marriages and what destroys marriages, you can point to two cardinal sins. And get this very clearly, man. If, if you are engaged in these things, it'll destroy your marriage. Lust and anger. Often those two things are difficult to separate. They're so intertwined. And it's difficult to say one is worse than the other. If you are on the path of anger, understand. And if you're married, understand that you are leading your marriage into the rocks. And if you're not married and you're a man of anger, don't get married. Do your potential wife a favor and remain single. Anger kills marriages, kills intimacy. Anger kills relationships. Proverbs 26 verse 21, Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so a contentious man is to kindle strife. Same thing in Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgressions. You know that situation. You can have a perfectly good conversation going with a bunch of people and then the angry man comes and within a few moments, everybody disbands. He's brought tension, strife, division, quarreling. It just follows him around. There's an interesting Situation or interesting account in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps you've read that. I highly recommend that you do that. The allegory of the Christian on his way to the celestial city. And at one point, Christian is speaking to his friend Faithful about someone who is walking alongside the way with them for a while, and that person's name is Talkative. And notice this is what Christian says to faithful about talkative. He talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of new birth. But he knows only to talk of them. I have been in his family and have observed him both at home and abroad. And I know what I say of him is the truth. His house is empty of religion as the white of an egg is of savor. There is neither prayer nor sign of repentance for sin. Thus say the common people that know him, a saint abroad and a devil at home. His poor family finds it so. For my part, I I am of the opinion that he has by his wicked life caused many to stumble and fall. It will be, if God prevent not, the ruin of many more. Man, if, if anger marks your life and you've got a family, take this This study tonight is red light flashing in your face. You are headed to a cliff. You can destroy not only your marriage, but you'll make a devil out of your kids. And some of you here tonight grew up in that kind of a context. You know what it is like to have an angry dad. And yet what's so hard to understand is when you've grown up with that, Why you wouldn't run to the Lord and plead for his grace and mercy to make you a different man. In Christ Jesus and in the power of the gospel, you don't need to be like that angry father. And perhaps you had a great father. You've chosen the way of the flesh. 
the end result is still the same. You'll bring your house over the edge and all your kids with you. Number three, anger is a necessary cause for disassociation. Anger is a necessary cause for disassociation. Since anger is so corrosive to relationships and so antithetical to wise living, Proverbs calls upon the wise to distance themselves from those who give themselves over to anger. Now, this warning reflects what we've already learned about relationships in the book of Proverbs. Remember, there is this important law of wisdom, and it's the law of assimilation. It's the law of assimilation. And what is that law? That law is this, for good or for bad, we assimilate the convictions, the attitudes, and behaviors of those with whom we closely associate. That's just a a rule of thumb. We were meant to influence people, and we were meant to be influenced by people. We are creatures who are affected. God is not. God, in his being, is unaffected by external things. He's not affected or influenced by us because he's the self-sufficient creator. But we as creatures are affected beings, and so we will be influenced by those around us. Proverbs warns us to watch out for angry men. Their sin is very contagious. For example, Proverbs 19, verses 18 to 19, Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. A man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. What's he talking about here? I believe these two Proverbs are related. The the book of Proverbs is calling upon dads to discipline their son while there's still hope, while there's still time to, to do what you can do with the means that God has given you as a dad to, to point out the foolishness in the child, to point out the problem of anger, the inherent anger, the sinfulness that the child has, and to point him towards the solution which is found in the fear of God. Keep doing that and use your role as a dad to discipline that while there's still hope. If you don't, It's like you desire his death. You'll become a man of great anger. And that man of great anger must bear the penalty. And here's the instruction here. If you rescue him, you'll only have to do it again. Here's the teaching here. The the sage is saying to us, listen. When an angry man commits an error, a misstep, a crime, a sin, allow him to bear the consequences Do not rescue him from those consequences. Do not keep him from feeling the full impact of his actions. Because if you do, he will be right back at the crime, at the misstep, at the error, at the sin next week or tomorrow. The best hope for the angry man is for him to face the consequences head on. Don't stand in the way. Don't be a, like a helicopter dad coming in to rescue your son. He's in trouble for his anger. He's done something. Don't come in there, rescue him. Let him face the consequences. Because if you, if you, if you rescue him, 
You'll only have to do it again next week. And when we look around at all the adults in our society today who have all these anger problems, they were rescued too many times as young children. When they should have at that smaller stage, at that more controlled context, they should have faced the consequences of their actions. They never did. They never learned. Bruce Waltke, in his comment on this text, says this, Whereas a son is corrected by parental discipline, the hothead must be corrected by allowing the consequences of his own foibles to punish him. The wise father does not interfere in the operation of cause consequence of the divinely established penal and remedial moral order. Ironically, the person who rescues the hothead becomes caught in the unhealthy dynamics of his way. Here's another one. Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Summarizing this, Charles Bridges, the famous commentator in Proverbs, said this. Common interaction with a furious furious man is like living in a house that is on fire. His unreasonable conduct stirs our own tempers. One fire kindles another. Occasional bursts of passion soon form the habit, and the habit becomes the nature. You associate with a man given to rage. You will learn his ways. Proverbs says, be careful. And that's carried on into the New Testament. In fact, there's some interesting instructions that are given to the New Testament churches that highlight the danger of strife and anger in its midst. Romans 16 verse 17 says this, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Those who cause dissensions. Or in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In other words, there's a normal process for dealing with sin in the context of church discipline. First step, one-on-one. Second step, two or three witnesses. Third step, the whole church. Fourth step, excommunication, treat him like a tax collector, preach the gospel to him so as to win him from the folly of his ways. But with an angry, factious man, the process is actually truncated. They're a danger to the social well-being of the church. And so in Titus, it says, after one or two warnings, you have to disassociate from the man. He represents a social threat to the well-being of the church. That is how serious the Apostle Paul looked on this sin. Number four, anger is treated with great caution by the wise. Now, as I said already, anger is not inherently sinful. Remember, anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against the perceived evil. And so if there is something called evil, and there is, there must be anger. We cannot look upon evil. We cannot relate to evil neutrally. We can't just say, oh, well, God said it's wrong. I I guess it's wrong. And 
we have no response to that. No, as long as there is evil, there is a place for the right kind of anger. And as I said, God is known as a God of anger. In fact, the phrase, slow to anger, when applied to God, is one of the most repeated descriptions of God in the Old Testament. It begins in that great exposition of God's character in Exodus chapter 34, 6 to 7. Sometimes look there and you have this wonderful statement of all of God's perfections or or many of God's perfections there. As Moses said, show me your glory. God says, I can't do that. God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and and, and God preaches to Moses his own character. And one of the things that he preaches to Moses about his own character is that he is a God who is slow to anger. It's not that he has no anger, it's that he is slow to anger. And that phrase is then repeated ten times in the Old Testament. He is a God who is slow to anger. And as we seek to reflect the glory of God, his perfections, as we conform ourselves to his standards, we will reflect these moral qualities as well. So there is a place for anger, but notice we must define it correctly. What is righteous anger? Let me give you three characteristics. This is again taken from Jones uprooting anger. Number one, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. It doesn't react against losing a parking spot or having a cold dinner. That's not an actual sin. It is not anger that is exercised over something that you just perceive to be sin. It must be a response to what is defined as sin by God's revelation. You have to be able to point to chapter and verse on this. You have to use biblical categories. You can't just say, I've justified my anger, it's righteous anger because I don't like that. It's inconvenient, it's not comfortable, it hurt my feelings. No. When we talk about righteous anger, you always have to connect with chapter and verse. That's number one. Number two, righteous anger focuses on God, his kingdom, his rights, his concerns, his glory. That's what is at stake. It is not focused upon my rights. It's not focused upon my reputation. It's not focused upon my glory, my dignity, my, my, my. It's focused on God and his glory and his greatness and his majesty. It's our response when we see that those things are defamed. Thirdly, righteous anger always expresses itself with godly qualities and in godly manners. The means of expression, the means of of explaining this, of showing this moral judgment against an evil will always be godly in itself. The one who is righteously angered will maintain control of his thoughts He'll not be like that city without walls. He'll maintain control of his desires, his feelings. He will use words that are true and honorable. And he will express his indignation in manners that are not sinful. That's righteous anger. So, Proverbs 14 verse 29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Notice the contrast. Slow, quick, righteous anger is slow. 
Proverbs 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. There's a very famous Russian painting by Ilya Repin, painted in 1885. Shows the picture of Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, great emperor in Russian history, conquered much, ruled with an iron fist. And at one point, he accused his beloved son, his oldest son, of inciting a rebellion. His son denied it, and in anger, Ivan Grozny used a scepter and struck him on the head, killing him, and then held him as he died in his arms. Indeed, just as Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, more powerful than the mighty. Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. This phrase, slow to anger, this is interesting to note. The phrase, slow to anger, when used outside of Proverbs in the Old Testament, always is used to refer to the Lord in the Old Testament. But in the book of Proverbs, all of its occurrences refer to the wise man. You see, here you have the wise man who is reflecting the glory of the one whom he fears. And because he fears a God who is slow to anger, he will exhibit that same quality in his own life. Like what Matthew Henry said about wise anger, in that it's slow, it's controlled, it doesn't lead to bitterness and all kinds of ungodly manners of expression. Matthew Henry said this, wise anger is like a fire from the flint. There is a great ado to bring it about, and when it is done, it is out again immediately. Think of that. Number five. Finally, anger is to be quelled, not provoked. And here again, we're talking about sinful anger. It is to be quelled, not provoked. When you read the book of Proverbs, it defines a special kind of skill, wisdom, and the ability to bring peace and tranquility where there is tension and quarreling. Proverbs twelve eighteen: there is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of the sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15 verse 1, we know this one. A gentle anger turns away wrath. A gentle anger turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The same in 15 verse 18. Over and over again, we have these proverbs that talk about how the wise man is able to enter into a a situation and he has the skills to bring calm. That's a wise man. And then now, now compare that with the other man that I spoke of before, the one who enters any kind of context where there is peace and harmony, and he brings with it this mess of tension and quarreling. That's the fool, but the wise man is the one who can enter that kind of a context where quarreling already is taking place. There is tension, bitterness, and he brings in a tranquility through the skills, through the wisdom that God has given to him. How is this done? You can study this later, but let me just list a few ways. One quells anger and does not provoke it, first of all, through the skillful use 
of words, the very careful use of words. Remember this, men, there's death and life in the power of the tongue. Don't underestimate your words, whether it's in the context of your home where there might be tension or in relationships. God has given you special power. If you're walking in his wisdom, according to his word, he gives you that ability to use the power of words to bring tranquility. It may not come instantly, but men, too many of you are silent. You should be in your homes using the power of words to quell. But there is also a place for silence. Proverbs also speaks about that. Proverbs 10, 19, 17, 14, 17, 27, 21, 23. There is a place for silence. Quarreling is like the letting out of water. So stop it before it even continues. So silence. Not responding in the sarcastic response that you have lined up. Instead, confessing it to the Lord as sin and getting it out of your mind. Means being Turning the other cheek when someone strikes out at you. Not responding in like manner. Not returning evil for evil. The skillful use of patience, of waiting for the opportune time. Not trying to pour oil onto the fire of someone's anger. By trying to bring at that moment when he has lost all control. That you're going to give him a, a lengthy sermon on anger when he is out of control. Waiting for the proper time. And then bringing him the words of admonition and rebuke. Or the skillful use of listening. Sometimes it takes an ear to hear in order to calm the situation down. All of those are skills that are helpful for quelling. Well, in the end, I want to leave you with some hope. I want to leave you with a lot of hope. I'm sure if we would ask the question... How many men here have struggled with anger? It'd be filled with a sea of hands raised. But I want you also to know that if if I'd ask this question, how many of you are, are less angry today by the grace of God than you were five years ago? There would also be a good number of hands. And that testifies to the transforming power of the gospel. You don't need to be an angry man for the rest of your life. There's hope. Well, what do you do? First of all, recognize your anger as wicked. Recognize this sinful anger as a defamation of God's glory. You start there. You take ownership. You call a spade a spade. No longer justifying it. No longer trying to find a cover for it. Just call it for what it is. That's where it begins. It is sin. It is an affront to the holy character of God. And then confess Speak it to the Lord as, as acknowledgement that it is evil and wicked. Turn from it. Turn from the, the sinful idols that you have erected in your heart. Turn from the rage that you practice whenever those idols aren't worshipped as you want them to be. And even when you have good desires, but they're not met as you want them to be, confess how you wrongly respond Confess, repent. Thirdly, turn or return to the gospel 
and the promises that it offers to angry people. Know this, Christ died for angry men. Christ died to atone for the sin of anger and malice and strife and bitterness and resentment. He came to die for those kinds of things. And the gospel promises forgiveness for those who will flee to those promises and embrace them as their only hope. Confess, number four, confess your anger to those you have hurt. Take those steps to go to those that you have hurt maybe a year ago or more, or maybe today, and say, what I did to you is sin. Use biblical terms. Confess that to, to the, your loved ones, your friends, your coworkers. Say, I sinned against you and against God. I had angry thoughts, worse than you could imagine, and I did something out of anger to you. I ask for your forgiveness. And then enlist the help of godly men around you who can help you with this through discipleship and accountability. Perhaps it means this summer taking the book, Uprooting Anger, finding another man who's farther along the path of sanctification, who's already grown through this. Say, brother, help me. Read this book with me. And don't let me get off easy. And in closing, I want to read one text for you that again highlights the hope that is there for you. It's a text out of Paul's own testimony. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 to 16, we read the testimony of a man who once was an angry man. The apostle Paul said this, even though I was a formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, I was shown mercy. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul was a murderer a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, an angry man. And the Lord saved him and said, here is an example. Here is what my grace can do. Men, the same can be yours. The Lord can save the apostle Paul. He can save you. Turn to him. Turn to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this blight that is so intertwined in our lives, that reaction that is always so quick and easy, that response of indignation and rage when people don't do what we want, when providence doesn't go our way. Lord, we long for the time when we'll finally be done away with it. 
I pray for those here tonight who might have all the intelligence of the great doctrines of the faith and may know the creeds of church history and yet are men of rage. Break them for their good. Reduce them to nothing while there still is hope for their soul. And then put them back together again in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, for us who still struggle with the unredeemed flesh, give us resolution, conviction. Give us good brothers who will speak truth to us. Make us sensitive to the teaching of Proverbs and make us slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And we ask this so that we would have the privilege of reflecting, even in a small way, the majesty of your character. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.